Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Guide our time in your word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this evening, the gift of new faces, the gift of this community, and especially the gift of sacred scripture. And so we ask tonight, Lord, as we dive into your word, that you would speak to us. You are the word made flesh, and so... As we read these words, we encounter you, the person, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so we ask, Lord, that whatever individual message or word you have for each one of us, that our hearts would be open, our ears would be attuned to listen, and our minds would be undistracted and focused. And so we pray, Lord, that in the power of your name, that you would cast out and rebuke any spirit of distraction, of worry, anxiety, anything drawing our attention away from this time in your word, and that you would just send your Holy Spirit of peace and comfort, consolation, especially in the ways that we most need it. Guide this time, allow this next hour and our entire lives to be at your feet. Let your will be done and speak to us, Lord. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. We are in Matthew chapter uh, 16, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 27. This is our gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. And we are picking up right where we left off last week. So we just read last week, and we heard yesterday at Mass Matthew 16, 13 through 20, where Peter uh, is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's given the seat of authority uh, to be the founder or the uh, leader of this church that Jesus intended to come and institute. And now we have the immediate follow-up from that gospel uh, in this week's reading. So we're going to read this twice through, as we always do. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Uh, Previous to this, Jesus and the disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Now it's clear they're on their way back, but it's not exactly clear where on the journey they are um, right after this. So they're on their way back, okay? So first time through, just get a picture for what's being said here. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, the first prediction of the Passion. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, second time, final time through, we're going to read this again. And as we do, now maybe you have an image of this in your mind, I want you now to focus um, very in- intently on the words as you hear them and listen for any particular word or phrase that stands out to you personally. Okay, so maybe it sparks something in your own mind, it relates to something going on in your personal life. How is this speaking to you individually? It could be an insignificant word. Again, this part is not to theologically interpret the passage. This is to see how is the Spirit of God moving in this text and inspiring it uh, to deeper reflection and prayer specific to what's going on in your own life. So just listen for that. See what you notice. Pay attention to those things and begin to bring them to prayer. Why is this standing out to me, Lord? What are you trying to say to me through this detail or this word? Final time through, Matthew 16, starting in 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to reflect on those things that stood out to you and any questions that this reading Um, posed for you, and we're going to take about the next 10 minutes or so at your tables. You're welcome to join up with another table if you'd like, if you're a smaller one. Um, And just share what stood out to you, why you think it did, any questions you have about this reading. If you're listening to this or watching uh, it later, please let us know. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes to do that, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions. So I think it's important to um, give a little, a tiny refresher of, of the passage previous to this from last week, because this flows right from it. And that really, in the Gospel of Matthew, is kind of a central climactic moment. So if you remember, last week we talked about the fact Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. It's the only time he ever goes there. It's this city built into a giant rock, 100 feet, uh, 100 feet high, 500 feet wide, on the top of which is a pagan church, rather a pagan temple, um, to the god Pan. And... Um, kind of areas that are uh, um, associated with emperor worship worship um, to Caesar. And so there is where he tells Peter, 
you are going to be the new master of the house, the Al-Habayit. Remember, it has this comparison to Isaiah 22. Uh, and in that passage in Isaiah, they use this language of, you're the steward, you have the keys, you can speak and act on authority of the king, you can bind and you can loose. And Jesus uses that same language to Peter. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm intending to set up an institution with you at the head, and you have that same power to bind and loose, like a steward has of his king, or like in the Jewish system, the al-habayit, kind of the prime minister, the master of the house, has of the king. And immediately after he does this, and he gives this authority and power to Peter, is when he then announces, the very first line here, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So it's positioned here to show you what Jesus just did was an intentional climactic moment. He did not begin that journey to his death until he came to do what he intended to do. And we see this particularly depicted in the Gospel of Matthew, that there were two things that Jesus very much intended to do as he's proclaiming the message of salvation and the kingdom of heaven. And that is to start a church and then to institute the Last Supper as a method of worship and remembrance for that church. Because all of the imagery that Matthew offers is pointing back to the Old Testament, to Moses and the Passover, showing that Jesus is the new Lamb of God, who's offering himself once and for all as a sacrifice for our sins, just like the Passover Lamb was offered uh, to slave, save them from slavery. And he came to institute this church so that people would come to know Jesus and his salvation for generations, and to give that church authority, starting with Peter and then flowing to the rest of the disciples, and then those they gave that authority to thereafter. And so it's clear here, based on the positioning of, finally Jesus begins to reveal, now I must go to Jerusalem. Well, why now? Why couldn't you have gone before? Well, because he came and he did one of those things he intended to do. Now he can work his way toward Jerusalem to do the second thing, to institute that Eucharistic feast, the Passover feast, the new Passover, which we now know as the Mass, for our act of worship. And so Jesus is being very intentional here, and Matthew is positioning this in a way to make it very obvious to the reader that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He intended to institute this church, but he also intended to make his way toward his death. Jesus was not a passive victim. He was on a mission to offer himself sacrificially for our sins, for our atonement. And so the second he institutes this church, which is going to be the conduit of his grace, a way in which people can know salvation, know the message of Jesus Christ, he works his way toward Jerusalem to die. And he tells them here, the first time, he tells them again in Matthew 17, and the third time in Matthew 20, I am going to go and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised. Now, this is very confusing to the disciples because there was no understanding up until this point that the Messiah was going to die and be raised from the dead. There's no mention of that in the Old Testament. There are mentions and references to life after death, to resurrection, but not particularly associated with the Messiah. And remember, this Messiah figure was very, a very confusing figure, a very politicized figure to the Jewish people. Some thought he was going to be like Elijah and come be like a prophet. Some thought he was going to be like King David and was going to come and reinstitute this glorious kingdom of the Hebrews and overthrow Rome and make them independent once again. And no one really had it right. Jesus fulfills all these things in various ways, but he comes and he turns all of these conceptions or notions of the Messiah upside down and challenges their idea of what it means 
for the Messiah to come and save his people. And so it's no wonder that Peter and the disciples are surprised in these different passion accounts or these different passion predictions. And so what does Peter do here? He objects, he rebukes, he says, God forbid, probably for one of two reasons. He either did not really understand at all what Jesus was talking about, or he understood way too much what Jesus was talking about. Either way, he, he steps up, he speaks up, as he often does, sometimes putting his foot in his mouth, and he speaks up, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now imagine, you just got made the first leader of this church, that the Savior of the world came, who's done all these miracles, all these signs, you're probably sitting pretty. You're like, all right, I got chosen. You know, like, all right, you guys are going to listen to me. And then all of a sudden, you make one mistake five seconds later, and you are now being called Satan, the enemy, the adversary. Now, there's a distinction here. Jesus isn't calling Peter the devil. Okay, the, the title Satan or Satanas in, in Greek means just adversary, someone who is opposed to you. So it's a, a term that's often used, a title to describe the devil, but it also can be used to describe anyone who is your enemy or your adversary. And so Peter is placing himself. He's just been called rock. His name has just been called rock. And then it says, you are an obstacle to me. In the literal Greek, it says, you are a stumbling block. Like you're a rock, but you're in the wrong place. You've put yourself in front of me. And so when, when, when Jesus says, get behind me, He's not rebuking Peter and saying, you don't belong here anymore. He's not rebuking Peter and saying, you're no longer the leader of this church. He restores him later at the end of John. He says, Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. He restores him to that place of shepherding authority in the church in John 21. And so it's not that he's rebuking him and his sense of authority. What he's doing is he's telling him, you are a disciple. And the proper position of a disciple is to follow me. Get back behind me. And I think this is a good lesson for you and for me because I think a lot of times when we pray, when we think about our life, we try and get out in front of Jesus. We kind of try and run forward and be like, all right, Jesus, okay, I, I, know, I know things are about to happen. This is what I would really like to happen right now. We kind of pull ourselves out in front. And we bring these different things to prayer and we kind of just say, okay, Lord, this is what I would like to see happen. Whether it's in our life or in a given situation, we kind of try and, I don't know, nudge Jesus in the direction that we would prefer. And Jesus is reminding Peter and he's reminding you and I in this passage that our proper position behind Jesus is behind him, following him, following him very closely, yes, but we don't belong out in front. Even today, 2,000 years later, who we as Catholics believe is the descendant of St. Peter in that realm of hierarchical authority, the Pope, Pope Francis, his job to be Pope is to follow Jesus closely, not to replace him, but to follow him. And if he begins to try and go out in front of Jesus to do things that are antithetical to the, church, the, the teachings of Jesus and the traditions of the church, then he would not be honoring that role of being the master of the house. He is not speaking for himself. He's speaking on behalf of the king. He is a steward on behalf of Jesus. We're all, in essence, meant to also fill that role in our own lives. We're all meant to represent Jesus in the world. We can't run out in front of him and charge into areas where he's not inviting us, say things that he is not compelling us to say, do things that he is morally forbidding us to do. 
we need to recognize our own position on this journey of faith as disciples of Jesus is behind him. That's why every time he encounters someone that he wants to follow him, he says, come follow me. Come follow me. Don't walk with me. Don't walk next to me. Come follow me. That was the proper position of a student to their rabbi, a disciple to their rabbi. I've said this before, but it was a common historical, uh, at this time, historically, it was a common blessing for disciples, for people to tell them, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That's how closely you were meant to follow your rabbi, that the dust of their sandals would kick up and cover your tunic. That's how you are to follow them. But the second we turn out in front and we say, okay, Lord, just because I don't understand this, there must be a problem. No. If God is on my intellectual level, then we have a problem. And that person I believe in is not God. It's some human idea of God that I have. God is so far high and above us. Isaiah 55, my ways are above your ways, my thoughts are above your thoughts, says the Lord. And so can we trust, even in these moments that are difficult, where God might reveal something or lead us down a path where we're like, this is not where I saw this going. This took a real left turn to be able to say, all right, Lord, I will stay behind you. I will follow you down this dark, winding, narrow path that is very difficult. And I won't go down the broad and easy path that many take simply because you're leading, you're in charge, and I will follow you closely to the end. That's the disposition of a disciple. And the second we get out in front of it, the second we get out in front of Jesus or rebuke him or try and control the outcome and lack that trust that he knows exactly what he's doing, that's when we get in these problematic positions in our life. That's when we cause, or the word um, where he says, you are an obstacle to me, that means stumbling block is scandalon in Greek. We cause scandal. That's where that word comes from. We can cause scandal by running out in front of Jesus, saying and doing things beyond what he's calling us to. And then suddenly we are attracting negative attention toward the church. We are negatively representing God. We are acting as hypocrites, acting as the scribes and the Pharisees do. We have to be wary of that. So a little context on that and how it relates to our passage from last week. I hope that's helpful. So with that being said, are there questions? Are there things that stood out to you that you'd just like to share? This resonated with me or just questions you have about this passage? Yes. Are you saying that you have a prayer of petition? There's a page on the end you say, thy will be done. So if you have a prayer of a petition, is it okay to say as long as you say thy will be done? You can ask the Lord for anything. You can, I can pray all I want for a Lamborghini, okay? But it's an understanding that just as my children ask me for things, I don't mind them asking, right? I want my children to ask me for things. And they ask me for audacious, weird, random things all the time. Things that I will never give them, that I can never give them. And I don't mind them asking. It's when they would then seek to force my hand or act like I don't know what I'm doing as their parent because I'm not giving them the thing that they're asking for. That's when we get in a problematic space. So we're free to ask the Lord, you know, for whatever, to bring prayers of petition to him. And we should do so responsibly. Like if all you're asking for is material goods, you should probably know by now. Jesus has a lot of teachings about those. He's probably not going to accommodate those requests. But just like my kids come and they ask me for monster trucks and to be space, you know, to buy them a spaceship to the moon, like, of course, I'm not going to accommodate those things. But I love that they come to me still. And so whatever we ask, whether we ask, you know, we should always be doing it in the spirit of, yes, thy will be done. That's why we pray at all, that we trust that God's will will be done. And we're just making our 
our needs known to him, just like any child makes their needs known to their parents, but their parents also know what they need. And so it wouldn't make sense, and it wouldn't really be loving if my children ever spoke to me. So yes, we still pray. And sometimes my children express needs to me that, yeah, I know they need food, but did I know they were hungry right this second? Well, maybe not. And so I provide that. And so that's kind of our relationship with prayer. We are, we are these children asking God our Father to provide, trusting that he will. He is a good parent. He is a good father. If we didn't ask, he would still provide. But he loves that we ask. And when we do ask, he will bless us in the ways that we ask that are in accordance with his will. But yeah, it must always be done trusting that he is the parent who he says he is. If we're trying to usurp him and say, all right, Lord, I know better than you. This is what you should be doing in my life. That's when the sin of pride sneaks in. Yeah. We were talking about, you know, get behind me. And I was thinking that this might, and some of this is because I've been watching The Chosen the last few, about a month or so. Sure. Peter seems to be the one person that's armed. And he's armed uh, later at the Passion because he's got a sword on him. Sure. And, you know, if you're told, you're already the leader and now you're the rock. And your job might be to scout out the next town and be a little bit ahead of the rabbi, the teacher, Jesus, so that he's in a safe spot and he can see when the crowd gets strange or the Romans come around. So it, it's, it's, I think it might be a little, in addition, the context is you don't have to protect me physically. I need you here spiritually. Mm. And that's why you need to be behind me. Because when you hear Satan and you don't know the Greek like you do, mm -hmm. you're thinking of it in an entirely different context. Like sure. What, so I was thinking, and then we go on to have the temporal versus the spiritual. Uh, I don't think Peter, I think Peter took his role literally. And Jesus yeah. is constantly telling the future leader of the church to, to not do that. Maybe. Sure, yeah. I don't know. And I think there's merit to that idea that Peter's thinking in a very worldly sense, because the other place we have this passage or this statement, get, get behind me or get away, Satan, is in the temptations in the desert in Matthew chapter 4 in verse 10. And it's in the third temptation where Jesus says, get away, Satan. Get away, Satan, using similar language there. And it's the temptation specifically where the devil offers him all of the kingdoms of the world. And so if Peter, yes, is thinking in a very worldly mindset, okay, we're going to be, we, I have to make sure that you are going to be this Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome and conquer all of this and we'll build your kingdom here. Jesus is using language from previous in the Gospel of Matthew to keen our ears to see that was about worldly desires. This is also about worldly desires. And you, Peter, need to be thinking more in the spiritual realm because that's where I've called you to be. I've not called you to be a, stu a steward of an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom that is coming and meeting earth in this place that I've instituted in the church. And so I think that's, yeah, that's a very good interpretation. Yes? How about the, uh, the passage of deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? Yes, yeah. So, any insights on the cross to take up? Yes. That's a very literal expression. Yes. In a very difficult way to yeah, and we've heard it many times, that phrase, take up your cross. But prior to this, this phrase did not exist because the cross was a perfected instrument of humiliation and torture by the Roman government. They had perfected the way to make the most pain possible. That's why we, the word excruciating shares its root with crucifixion. That's where that intense level of pain comes. Probably one of the most painful ways in human history to die. And so for Jesus to say, take up your cross, 
would be the equivalent of some sidewalk creature today coming up to you saying, take up your lethal injection. Like it would make no sense. Why would we celebrate this act of torture and capital punishment as something that we can have some kind of control over to carry? And again, I think speaking back to this comment about the worldly way we may see Jesus, the worldly attachments we may have, Jesus is calling us higher and above these things to see things from a spiritual perspective, from a divine perspective. That he is higher above our thoughts. His ways are far above our ways. And so if we can begin to look at life from that perspective, we stop worrying about things in a worldly sense. And so we can then deny ourselves. I don't need all of these earthly trappings, all of the, the things of instant gratification. You know, I think I've talked before about the four levels of happiness. There's priest Father Robert Spitzer. He has always talks about the four levels of happiness. And the first level is instant gratification. And this is, most people, a lot of people, especially in Western society, they'll live in this level their entire life. They'll never ascend beyond it. Because we live in a world where you can get everything from the push of a button in an app. You don't even have to interact with another person. And you can enjoy all the trappings and comforts of life if you have enough money to do so. And so here, there's this offer to deny yourself, to put aside those worldly things, those worldly expectations and worldly temptations. Take up your cross, meaning take up those things in your life which are moments of suffering, moments of difficulty, moments of pain, and follow me. As if Jesus is inviting, like, look, you don't have to have your life all together. I want you to take up everything that is you. Set aside everything that is not you. Deny, deny all those other worldly things. Because those things don't define you. Your possessions don't define you. I was watching a video um, a few days ago about um, Lila Rose was commenting on an award show uh, speech where a woman had won an award and she was basically saying, I could not have won this award if I didn't have the right to choose, specifically an abortion. And so Lila was pointing out like this is, this is awful that this woman is celebrating the fact that a human life was killed. And she said this line, when in, in however many years that statue will be dust. But that person was a person. And that just really struck me, that statue will be dust. That all these things we care about in an earthly sense, or that we might pursue money, attachments, material goods, they'll all be dust. And so will we. We'll all be dust. The only thing that is eternal is this connection that we have with the Lord, this relationship. And so if we deny ourselves, it's not saying I'm going to be self-deprecating and I'm going to humiliate myself and I'm not going to allow myself to experience any goodness or pleasure whatsoever. No, it's denying those things in us that have worldly attachments. That Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, I don't need those things. Get away, Satan. If we deny those things and we take up those parts of us even that are messy and difficult and broken, we can still follow Jesus. What I love also about this is it kind of speaks to the fact that you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have it all together to follow the Lord. You can just be dragging along the pieces that you can carry of your brokenness, your pain, your shame, your past, your guilt, and you can be in that process of healing and restoration and still be on that journey with Jesus. You don't see anywhere in Jesus, in the Gospels, Jesus going up to the apostles and first asking them, hey, do you have it all together? Okay, great, now come follow me. He just says, no, drop what you're doing now and come after me, as you are right now. Probably having no clue what's going on, and it's clear some of them still don't have a clue what's going on. But he's patient and willing to love them on the way there. 
we, I think, often stop ourselves too soon. We disqualify ourselves and say, oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready enough to follow Jesus. I've got to have this and this in line. I, I don't have enough time for that. You know, I've got to wait till school's over, this or that. You know, I've got to wait until I have enough time on my calendar. Then I'll start going to Mass every week. Then I'll start praying every day. Then I'll start doing this or that. Maybe when I retire. Maybe when I'm not working. And we just put it off and put it off and put it off. Jesus here is reminding us this is the only thing that matters. This is the only thing that matters. What you do with the gift of salvation that you've been given. Notice this last line in our gospel. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. According to his conduct. Yes, our faith matters. Salvation is only possible by faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. But we will be judged according to our works. And if we have earthly attachments... If we're not denying ourselves, if we're consuming our life with ourselves and thoughts of what's going to bring us pleasure and bring us joy and bring us the things that we need before we have any concern for others, then we're going to be surprised when we face Jesus at our judgment. It's not just a one and done moment. We can't earn our salvation, but we can certainly lose it. Just like I can't earn my wife's love for me. When we married ourselves, married each other, we didn't marry ourselves, we married each other at that altar. And it was an act of faith. That moment of love, that is what made us married. Just like that act of Jesus dying on the cross and me responding to it, that moment offered me the gift of salvation. And I receive it in my baptism. But from that day forward, I need to live as a married person. And if I start going cheating on my wife, it doesn't mean I'm not married anymore, but it means my marriage is not good. And I'm not living up to the fulfillment of that relationship. The same thing is true in my relationship with Jesus. I can have that act of faith. I can start that relationship. And it's only what Jesus did for me on the cross that offers me any salvation. I can never earn it. But I have to live up to that. Because it says all over scripture, you will be judged according to your works. Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations. What you did for these least brothers of mine, you did for me. Here, we'll repay each according to his conduct. James chapter 2, verse 24, see how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Are we living up to what it means to follow Jesus? Miguel. Some religions, you know, uh, they, they don't support that. I, I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just, mm-hmm. just uh, asking a question because uh, they say, you know, you just have to accept God. And that's it's like a magical riddle. And that's once you accept Jesus Christ, you're done. Um, I think that if you really, when someone actually really does that, when they accept Jesus Christ, your actions will follow. So they, it's not really necessarily that they're wrong, they are like, they're mm-hmm. but it's not just saying, I accept Jesus Christ and I'm done. Yes. So, so if you don't follow it with your actions, mm-hmm. then it's an incomplete. Yes, and and to be fair, I think that is a a often misunderstanding Catholics have of a lot of Protestants and evangelicals, is that a lot of evangelicals and Protestants would probably articulate that, yes, you profess that you have faith in Jesus Christ, sola fide, it's faith alone that saves you. We believe also initial justification in Jesus Christ, salvation is only from faith. But they would say you have faith in or so that you can do good works. Faith and works should be part and parcel. We would slightly alter that and say, you have faith and will be judged according to your works. 
So your works don't earn you anything. In fact, if you look at the theology between the two, like if real, regular, you know, like Protestant theology on sola fide and the Catholic doctrine of faith and works, they are nearly identical. But there are radical misunderstandings of each other's positions on both sides. So that, but there are Protestant or evangelical denominations who do believe what you just said. That all you need, it doesn't matter. You just profess faith in Jesus Christ and that's it. It doesn't matter what happens after that. You cannot lose your salvation. Um, it's called the, the doctrine of eternal security. And, and that's just not biblical. It does it. There are, there are places in the Bible where you can prove text that, where you can kind of draw out and point to it. But if you read the New Testament and the Bible as a whole, you're disregarding all the other places like we just read uh, and that I just referenced that your works also have an attachment of judgment according to them. And there's a process by which your works can sanctify you over time. They don't make you worthy of salvation, but they can perfect you and make you holier. And that's a good thing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. If faith alone was enough. Well, okay. Hold on. That's not fair. So, no. Faith is not just belief. Faith is belief with surrender. And that is what the devil doesn't have. So, but yes, the devil believes in Jesus and knows more than we do about Jesus. And so it's a challenge to us, like, am I doing better than at least the devil in this relationship with God? Do I just know a lot of information about God? Do I know who he is? Am I taking that next step and actually surrendering my will to him? Am I denying myself, taking up my cross and following him? Those are things the devil was not willing to do. I mean, allegorically speaking, he can't, he doesn't have a body, so he can't actually do that. But, you know, but actually denying his own will and submitting to the plan of God. No, it was his pride that caused him to lead the rebellion against, against God and take a third of the angels with him. And so uh, that's the difference. But yes, so the devil believes in Jesus and the fact that he knows that he's real and he knows that he's God, but he doesn't have faith in Jesus because that involves a submission of the will. Now, come It's fascinating to see uh, like the through line from Daniel through, this, through the Gospels of, uh, 27, I mean, it's not part of the reading, but 28, uh, Jesus is talking about how he is the son of man, the mm -hmm. of Daniel, how he's yes. gonna, he is going to fulfill the prophecy in the short term when he's there in the Gospels, mm -hmm. and then in the long term, which is, I think, described in Revelation. Yeah. I, don't know, I just thought that was interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. That line we didn't read. Um, talking about the fact that oftentimes we think about all of these prophecies about the Son of Man coming, uh, being just about the end times. But he's saying there are some of you here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Jesus is talking about the fact that when he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, he will be coming into his kingdom. And many of them there, in fact, all of them there except for one, saw that happen. Judas was the only one who was no longer living at that point. Matt? Um, you talked a lot about instant gratification and I was thinking about how like the Greek tragedies or just you watch any like drama and like it doesn't end happily and I I've always like felt really weird at the end of those movies because mm -hmm. like, it wasn't very gratifying like I always wanted a happy ending for anything I watched so I think when Peter was hearing that like you know someone that he believed to be his Lord and Savior was going to just die a tragic death mm. like that wasn't very gratifying to him. it wasn't like that instant gratification like instant yeah. gratification it's like you know he like prevails like physically over like all their enemies but then i was thinking about martyrdom how like over time that like to me is like the most glorious like death so it's like yes it's very humiliating how jesus died mm -hmm. but like at the end of the day like two thousand years 
years later, like look how much we've been glorifying. And so like I just think about instant gratification at that time. It's like it doesn't make sense, like if you look at it like at that moment in time, that hour. But if you look at it, you know, two thousand years later, like yeah. that's the most glorious thing. Yeah. And we've talked before about the image of Jesus on the cross as an ambush predator. I don't know if you remember this. But there are certain animals in nature that are ambush predators. They hide or appear dead before their prey gets so close that they just destroy it. There's one snake that will just stand still with its mouth wide open in the middle of the jungle. And because the inside of a snake's mouth is maybe warm or humid, birds will just slowly just walk right into the mouth of this snake. And all he does is just, that's, he doesn't even have to hunt. He just like sits there with his, his mouth open. It's effortless, it seems. Trapdoor spiders are another one. Different things like this. Jesus on the cross, again, he's not a passive victim. He's an ambush predator. He appears weak. He appears humiliated. But he's offering himself up for, for our salvation in the most glorious way possible. Martyrdom. Offering his life as a gift, as a sacrifice of salvation for all of us. In complete control. Completely willing to the very end to go there. He himself even, I think, says to Pilate or to the chief priests at one point, do you not think that I could call down an army of angels from my Father in heaven? Don't you know that I could do that? But that's obviously not what he intended to do. And so all these moments where he has these intentional actions are a reminder to us that this isn't just a, uh, a supernaturalized story of some legendary person in history. These are the real events of a real person who claimed to be God and proved it by dying for our sins and rising from the dead. And that was so impactful, so true, so earth-shatteringly transformative that it changed the face of human history forever and has persisted longer than any other man-made or human institution in history for 2000, almost 2,000 years. And now a third of the world are Christians because of one guy on a cross. Incredible. And yet his message, not super exciting in this passage. Come suffer. Don't enjoy yourself. Deny yourself. Come follow me to this place where I am telling you I am going to have the appearance that I have lost. I will die. I will die. Come and see the glory of the new kingdom of the Hebrew people, but I'm going to die. Just come along for the ride. Like, it's not the best sales pitch. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later. Yes? I'm just curious, to go off the emphasis of the cross, this is the first time there's really mentioned there's disciples. Mm -hmm. um, would you think when he's saying that, take up your cross, that they would understand kind of what we're articulating in, okay, you take everything, you know, the goods about the ugly that you actually need and not the worldly possessions, or was that something that the Peter disciples would have heard and been like, what? Take up my cross for what? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if the cross is such an excruciating way to die, and obviously a negative connotation to it, yeah. would that even have been, like, translated to them of, like, what that would be? Yeah, would they have understood the cross? I think it would have... <laughs> Especially, I mean, he does this three times. Obviously, he needed to. You know, like, if the first time stuck, we wouldn't have the second and third prediction. And even then, it's not clear they even stuck. Um, I think they would have been so overwhelmed by the image of Jesus talking about the cross in seemingly a positive and intentional way that they would have been completely thrown off by that. 
Like, I, I don't know how anyone would have been able to justify that and just be like, you know. And sometimes we, we make the mistake of reading scripture with these rose-colored glasses. Like, yeah, they all totally got it immediately. And we, uh, we extract their humanity from them. Uh, but I th if I were there, I would have been like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Well, it's like you know? now, I mean, in my own family, like whenever something, you know, there's something that's nagging on someone else. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, their attitudes, and they're across the, like, that's their cross to bear. Like, yeah. to deal with it type of thing. It doesn't seem like, obviously, we all wear crosses, and it's all a symbol, but it's also not, I don't think Christians, Catholics, ever view it as, as heavy or like, instituting, I should say, yeah. as it actually is. Does that make sense? When you're saying, like, pick up your cross, take, like, imagine that someone else on the side of the street telling you to shoot up a lethal injection. Like, that's yeah. like, very drastic. Versus, like, oh, we all wear like, crosses and like, these guys for us. Yeah. So I think that is, like, Crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we've and I think we've been desensitized to the image of the cross, especially in the in the Catholic tradition, because we have them everywhere. And there's a reason why, because we want to remember, like this is the instrument of our salvation. Like we're not saying that Jesus is still dead and we're not trying to re-sacrifice him over and over again. Jesus is risen, but that was the act of him offering himself as a new Passover lamb and atonement for our sins. And so as Dr. Scott Hahn puts it this way, he says, um, Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe because I owed a debt that I couldn't pay. And I don't ever want to forget that. That's why we wear crucifixes uh, and not just crosses. But you can imagine walking into that church one day and all of a sudden that act comes to life in history and Jesus is actually bleeding and actually screaming in pain. Then we would actually see how completely uncomfortable this idea of celebrating or speaking about the cross in any positive way would have been completely like uncomfortable to the people that heard it. We've just gotten so used to it, you know, and it should provide a source of comfort for us. When we walk into a church, we're saved. That was the instrument of our salvation. And also, Jesus suffered. I have a suffering Savior. My suffering is welcome here. But I'm welcomed here as a sinner who is suffering, who is being offered salvation every single time I step through those doors, every single time I approach Jesus. But for them at this time, yeah, I think it would have been wild. Like, I, I can't even begin to imagine how confused they probably would have been. Yeah. Yeah, Connor. Is the challenge, I mean, that he poses in verses 20, 25 and 26, it kind of reminds me of the Beatitudes, where uh, at its base it seems like he's speaking in contradictions, mm -hmm. but maybe doesn't realize the, the spiritual essence of it. Uh, when he's asking his disciples to live lives where they deny themselves, or where they're going to give up their lives mm -hmm. so they can avoid a spiritual death, like, I guess it's interesting to me that he's calling them to live a life of, of suffering um, because a life a life of suffering lived for God is a way to ensure that you won't spiritually die. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe, yes, he's calling them to a life of suffering. I think even more than that, he's calling them to a life of sacrifice. Because to sacrifice means to love. That's what he's trying to teach. That's what God was trying to teach us from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what are the punishments for Adam and Eve? Adam has to work. He has to, by the sweat of his brow, toil the land. And Eve has increased pangs in childbirth, both of which show that he's trying to articulate to them that in order to authentically love, to trust, to obey, means you have to understand sacrifice and suffering. Think about two people who are married. If they're never called to sacrifice and suffer for one another, they're just like, I don't know, bonus friends. I don't even know what you call it. It's just like, you know, fun all the time. It's great, you know, and, and, and eventually that would just be kind of a shallow relationship, I think because you're not being called to any sort of higher purpose. 
And that's why one of the highest orders of the married life is to have children, because that in itself is an instrument of sacrifice. Two people have to be vulnerable to one another to sacrifice their comfort, to enter into the act to make a child, and then carrying a child in a woman's body, going through that entire process of labor, childbirth, breastfeeding, raising children together, is an incredible act of sacrifice. And it's only through that that we learn that sacrifice is love. Suffering is love. The crucifix is an instrument of love. That's what suffering teaches us. And so it's not that Jesus is just saying, well, you're going to suffer, but suck it up. You know, like, it'll be better in the end. It's like, no, it won't just be better in the end and more glorious in the end. I think it's St. Therese who says, even the worst life on earth, once we get to heaven, will seem only like one night in an inconvenient hotel. That's how glorious heaven will be. But even in this life, in this life, suffering and sacrifice can perfect us, can allow us to be sanctified and more holy. Lauren, did you have something? Super out there question. Oh shoot, do it. Um, is it against the Bible in a way to have an unnatural labor, like if you're an epidural or something? Is it against the Bible to have an unnatural labor? Like if you get an epidural. So it would be against the it would be against the teachings of the church and the natural created order to have a pregnancy that was outside of the natural order. So something like IVF surrogacy, something like that, all of which you can read about in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. However, things that are medicinal, like that doesn't disrupt the natural order, it helps. So we can use modern science and things to help us like with illnesses. It wouldn't be against the natural order to take Tylenol when you get a headache. So it's equivalent to that. Like we can use that in order to help the health of the mother, help the delivery along. So it wouldn't be something that constituted uh, sinful because it's not breaking the natural way in which God ordered for us to have children. It's not disrupting it. It is seeking to help it along, if that makes sense. Kind of. So actually, the translation in that um, when women are given increased pains in childbirth, the word for pains is actually not physical pain. It's emotional distress. And the word for childbirth is actually not childbirth. It's uh, infertility. And so this is why you see a pattern all throughout the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children until they were very old. Same thing, I believe, with Isaac and Rebekah. Um, Hannah could not give birth, and she cries in the temple for, to have a son, and she has Samuel. So there's this constant um, pattern of the faithlessness of the people has affected their ability to be fertile and multiply, the first command of God, and has affected their fertility. And so over and over again, God brings ways in order for mankind to be fruitful and to restore that relationship. So it doesn't mean that there wasn't pain, pangs of childbirth. It says, I will increase the pangs. So if it is physical pain, then it doesn't mean that there wasn't any before. But in the actual Hebrew, it's actually not talking about physical pain. It's talking about infertility. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. I love those sidebar questions. <laughs> uh, any final question or comment? We just have two minutes, so any burning final thing anyone wants to ask or say? Yes? So, like, something you said about, like, masses, like, we're not sacrificing Jesus. And I remember, like, reading some stuff on, but, like, we are offering them up, so what's the difference? Yes, so we are not re-sacrificing Jesus over and over again. His one sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. What the Mass is, is a representation of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ as an act of worship to God the Father in gratitude and remembrance as Jesus commanded us as the act that saved us from our sins. 
And we participate in that as a sacrificial new Passover meal to be sustained by the body and blood of the new Passover lamb when we receive the Eucharist. So we're participating. It's as if we're going back in time to that. There's only ever been one mass, and that's the Last Supper. And we just continue to travel through time and re-participate in that every time we have mass. So it would be like in Passover, if there was one lamb that like every Passover we used the same. Yep. Like that would be yeah. One bread, one body. Yeah. That's why there's only one priest. The only priest is Jesus. He's the one high priest. Every other person who has the title of priest simply is used as a vessel in that moment for Jesus to act through. Yeah. Well, amazing questions. I hope this passage um, provides further reflection for us, especially on our walk as disciples of Jesus. How are we following him? How are we taking up our cross? How are we denying ourselves? Um, let's bring that to prayer this week and really allow Jesus to challenge us to deeper faith, not just to know him, but to believe in him, to have faith in him, to submit our will to him, to not get out in front of him and act like, okay, God, I know how this thing's going to work. To come to him, yes, as his children who trust in him, but also to trust that he is a parent who knows what he's doing, who knows how to provide for us. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of your word, for the gift of this time and study. We pray, God, that you would just draw us deeper in faith, deeper in relationship with you, and to be grateful each and every day for the gift of salvation that you have given us. We cannot earn it. We cannot merit it in any way. It is a free gift of grace for our sanctification. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to live up to that relationship that you call us to, to do good works, to tell others of the good news, to help them know the gift of salvation so that we can all live with you forever in the eternal glory of the kingdom of heaven. And we pray, God, that we would uh, just know you more deeply each and every day. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it. All of our intentions, everything going on in our lives, where we have need of you, Lord, we lay at your feet. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much.